you working on? I never seen it. Neither does anyone else. Who talks to you on that uh, radio set, and who do you talk to? Who do I talk to? I talk to monsters from outer space. I talk to three-headed green men who fly over here in what look like meteors. Steve, Steve, please. It's just a, a ham radio set, that's all. I bought the book for him myself. It, it's just a ham radio set. A lot of people have them. I'll show it to you. It's down in the basement. Oh. Welcome to AmateurLogic.tv, episode 16. I'm George. And I'm Jim. And I'm Tommy. And I'm Peter. We've got another great show for you in store here today. We've got a good many videos to go through. Uh, I'm back to show you that that soft rock receiver really does work. Uh, we've got an interview with Martin Jew from MFJ Enterprises. Oh, all right. We've got uh, Peter demonstrating uh, a Cantina replacement. And we've got Tommy uh, showing his Atash Yezu antenna system. And Jim's got another network tool for us. All right. I miss those. I like those. We've had so many uh, emails come in in the past month from episode 15 and the previous ones, of course. Yes. As a matter of fact, we got one from the QRP LS. This is Mike in Canada. And Mike writes, wow, episode 15 had a great demonstration of George using a hot air tool approach to surface mount soldering a la Cash Olson. And he says, I liked it because this was George's first attempt to solder surface mount components, and he did a great job. And he later shows what happens if you put too much solder paste on the pads. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Yeah, that was not intentional, but uh, that's just the way it worked out. You know, we get emails occasionally, people wanting to know how we produce the show, and Tommy's got one about that. Yeah, I got an email from Michael. It says, I really enjoy Amateur Logic Show and how it's produced. Don't change a thing. I've got a question to do with camcorders that are available to the average person. Most of the handheld models don't have a built-in microphone and no external microphone jack. Um, he goes on to... Uh, do you know of any that are less than $500 that have an external microphone jack? And he goes on to ask which ones we're using. And, uh, Mike, we chose uh, the Panasonic line. I think all of us are using the 3CCD Panasonic models um, from the 180 all the way up to the 500 and uh, pretty well got the whole gamut covered. And they all have internal uh, external microphone jacks and pretty good quality video and the price is reasonable as well you might want to give those a look cool yeah I know um, just from my research the Panasonic's are the only ones that that offer the external mic jacks across so many different models yeah it's pretty well standard on all of them I think I've got an email here from Wolf DC 9 F0 which uh, from memory I think is a German call and Wolf's written to us uh, to tell us about a 40 meter cantenna 
Now, if you think about it, a 40-metre cantenna would be pretty big, but this is a little different. The cans are stacked end-on-end, and the wolf's also downloaded uh, our 15 episodes uh, thus far, and uh, he's enjoyed them very much, uh, which is great. Now, that uh, uh, the subject of uh, cantennas leads me into perhaps our, our next uh, segment, which is uh, about an antenna which I, I built, which is quite easy to build, called a wok tenor. Just recently I came across a New Zealand website that talked about making wok tenors, and these are antennas that are made out of cheap Chinese cookware. So I decided to make my own, and here's the finished product. It's just a as you can see, just a metal mixing bowl with a wireless adapter uh, mounted uh, through a hole in the bottom uh, uh, right in the focal point of the metal mixing dish. And hopefully that should give about 10 dB of gain. Now to test this all out, I'm going to go up to the top of Mount Dandenong, which is 3.4 miles away from my home QTH, and try and connect with my router at home. I've uh, hauled a 1.6 metre satellite dish, uh, 1.6 metre wide satellite dish out to my front yard. I've put a cantenna in the focal point of that 1.6 metre dish, and then I've hooked that cantenna up to my router, which is in turn hooked into my cable modem. Now with a little bit of luck, there should be enough gain in that setup for me to be able to access the internet from the top of Mount Dandenong uh, 3.4 miles away. But we'll see how we go. Okay, here's what I'm using as a base antenna. I've got a 1.6 metre solid dish antenna. In the focal point of that I've made up a cardboard mount and in the middle of the cardboard mount I've got a cantenna. The cantenna is connected to a router the router in turn is connected to a cable modem, which in turn is connected to my cable. The dish is pointed at Mount Dandenong, and with a little bit of luck should give sufficient gain uh, to get the 3.4 miles distance from the antenna up to the top of Mount Dandenong. Here's my simple uh, cardboard adapter, which will hold my cantenna. It enables me to move my cantenna around to change the polarisation. Simple but effective. Now there are two important points to note at this point in time. The first is that you should never point a high gain antenna at anybody. Uh, that includes a cantenna or a Yagi antenna. Uh, at these wavelengths, these waves can actually be quite dangerous. The other point is simply that the government laws actually limit the amount of gain that you're allowed to have with a Wi-Fi antenna. For uh, amateur radio operators, we're allowed slightly higher limits. But uh, for unlicensed operators in particular, you should actually check with your local government department to see what's permissible. Now here I am on the top of Mount Dandenong at a place called Barnes Lookout. I went around to Sky High, which is just around the corner, but found that I could get no signal whatsoever. So I came here. The distance is about the same, 3.4 miles, but I've got clearer line of sight here. Somewhere down there is my home QDH. I'm not exactly sure where, but it's roughly where I've got my antenna pointed at the moment. And here's my antenna set up at the base of a tree and pointing in the right direction. And look, there I am, VK3PB. And I can actually see a couple of other nodes on NetStumbler as well. Now here I am running NetStumbler. As you can see, I'm getting a signal strength of between minus 68 and minus 70 dB. Now I've gone to YouTube and tried to look at episode 15 of Amateur Logic. As you can see, I'm getting a pretty good signal coming through and I can see the video going okay. 
but from time to time it stops and starts, which means I haven't quite got the bandwidth necessary to watch it in real time. Now in this test I've gone to the Amateur Logic website and I'm endeavouring to download episode 15. As you can see, the data rate coming down varies between 20 and 30k per second. Well, there you have it. The Wok Tenor really works. And it's a lot easier to build than a can tenor. If you're interested in knowing how to build a Wok Tenor, I suggest you visit that New Zealand website that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but basically, all you need to do is uh, get yourself a parabolic-shaped metal dish and put a Wi-Fi adapter in the focal point. The details of how to measure the focal point are on the website. Wow, Peter. You know what? I just realized I can get double duty out of that antenna, being the chow hound that I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a simple but quite effective little antenna. Yeah, and the principle was, of course, really there. And if you're like me and you can't cook, at least you can get some use out of your cookware. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. It really worked well. I was surprised. I've got an email here from Frank, KG4ULT, who's currently living in Puerto Rico. And he watched episode 15 and saw where I built the soft rock receiver in there and the soldering techniques that I used. And he wanted to add a couple of soldering uh, tips himself. He remembers uh, watching MacGyver in years past and how MacGyver could do anything with a paper clip. So Frank says all you really need is a soldering iron with any kind of tip on it you want. And basically you take the paper clip and you wrap it around the tip of the soldering iron and leave a little coil on there and then come on out with a point and then you use the point of the paper clip to actually do the surface mount soldering with. That way you've got a tip that's small enough to solder with and it's uh, not quite as hot too because the heat's diffused a little bit. Hey George, I got something about your soldering. Okay. Uh, this is an email from Steve Snortrosen Smith, <laughs> a well-known home brewer and QRPer from the QRPL mailing list, and he writes to say, Jimmy, wow, another hit, as usual, very entertaining, and he says he learned a bunch of stuff he didn't know, especially the DX Beacons, Ham Radio Deluxe, and Diggins segments. Steve, by the way, was a member of the winning 2006 Pacificon SMT building contest team, so he already knew a lot about soldering SMT style, but he did say, George, that your photography was first rate and he really enjoyed watching you build the receiver. Thanks, Steve. And Tommy, I believe you've got an email here on your favorite subject, don't you? <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> From Jerry, NR5A in South Dakota. Says he was watching the last episode and we have him very interested in Ham Radio Deluxe. He needs to take some time and watch it one more time to really get the gist of it. Uh, anyway, he said we, I had a lot of influence on him buying the A57D, so that probably makes about six of them that uh, I've heard of that I've had influence on. I should be getting a commission check from Yesu pretty soon. Um, uh, anyway, back to Ham Radio Deluxe. He says, do you need an interface like in PSK or digital modes or cable? or And also, where does it plug in? You do need a cable. Uh, I believe it's a CT62, if I remember correctly, and it... Uh, plugs into the serial port on your computer and into the cat linear jack on the back of your rig. Um, Ham Radio Deluxe will communicate with that after you enable it in the menu system on your radio. There's also an antenna jack on that radio. If you follow the one on my truck, you, it'll lead you right into my next segment on the ATAS 120A antenna that I chose for my mobile rig. <laughs> <laughs> this month we're going to go on with the kind of the theme for the last few. Um, as I said before, we had upgraded and 
bought uh, 857D, Yaesu 857D radios. Uh, last month I did a review on Ham Radio Deluxe and how it kind of enhances operation of the radio because of the, the menu system on the radio and so forth. This month we're going to go one step farther and I'm going to talk about the antenna that I chose for my 857 for my truck. I chose the Yaesu ATAS 120A antenna for a couple of reasons. One, it's pretty compact for a multiband mobile antenna. Second reason is that it's self-tuning. There's actually a servo in the antenna and it lengthens and shortens the antenna based on the band that you're on, the frequency that you're on. The circuitry in the rig sends a DC current through the coax and the shield and actually tunes the antenna. The, the antenna will work with 40 meters through 6 meters and it also works on 2 meters and 440. Because the 857D has two antenna ports, HF36 on one, 2 meters and 440 on the other, if you use the antenna for all of the bands, you're going to need a duplexer. That'll allow uh, DC current to pass through, so the antenna will still tune. I think Comet has one. I, I don't recall the uh, model number, but if you do a search on the, on the web, I believe eham.com has some information on it. Anyway, I've been pretty pleased with the performance of it so far. It's my first HF mobile antenna, so I don't really have a benchmark to go by. But overall, I've been pretty pleased with it. There's some construction things concerned me about the antenna. As you can see, it's, uh, the whip on it is pretty flimsy. The antenna mount, it takes a SO239, and that's a little bit hard to find in a mount like I was wanting to mount on my truck. So anyway, this mount is actually a mirror mount like you would use like on an 18-wheeler or something. I found it at Dayton. Anyway, it's worked out pretty good. It's not quite as sturdy as I as I would like for it to be, but it it's, uh, seems to be plenty sufficient. I've had it on here for several months now and really haven't had any problems with it. Pretty much the only SO239 mount that I found that I could bolt to the side of the bed of the truck in here. There are plenty of lip mounts for automobile, and uh, some people actually put them on the edge of the door frame but I didn't feel too comfortable with doing that on my truck, so I went, went this route, and like I said, it's worked out pretty good so far. I would like to find a little heavier duty one at some point. There are a few downfalls with the antenna. It, like I said, it works on 40 meters through 6 meters plus uh, 2 meters and 440, and, but the one thing that it's missing is 75 meters, or 75 or 80 meters, whichever you want to call it, but anyway, I don't use that band that much. Some of my friends in Mississippi still use it in the evenings, and I also like to check in on some of the nets. So if I have to not be at home where I could check in on my base, pretty well out of luck on that. But it hasn't been a big problem, but it's, it's a little inconvenient sometimes. The antenna itself seems to be made fairly well. There's some reports from a few people on Eham that or say said that water got in it and they had to replace the circuit board and everything but mine's been outside in the weather pretty much most of the time since I got it I had no problems whatsoever 
to tune the antenna, you have to enable the function on the radio. Look in your in your manual for your radio, and, and it'll tell you how to uh, how to enable that. I don't believe it worked with any other brand radios. I know the 857D Yesu, the 897, and the 817 will work with it. The 817, I believe, is a QRP rig, and they actually recommend the ATAS 25 for it. But the 120 should work as well. I have uh, tuned my or programmed the microphone. I bought the uh, multi-function microphone for my radio. I have uh, P2 on my microphone programmed to tune the antenna. So basically, you just hold that down. It'll tune all the way from from the shortest, which is six meters, to the longest, uh, which is 40 meters, and 25 seconds, or actually a little bit less, about 22 seconds, which is actually pretty fast. I, it's a lot faster than I thought it was gonna be. So, anyway, overall, been pretty happy with it. If you've got one of those radios that support it, you can't hardly go wrong unless you're mainly interested in using 75 meters, then you're pretty well gonna be out of luck on that. Um, one of these days I hope to come up with an adapter or a way to easily change from uh, this mount to a threaded mount so I could maybe put a, a, a ham stick or something like that on my truck when I do want to do 75 meters. But I don't want to add another antenna and uh, to my truck. I just don't really like the look of so many uh, on there. I know that's not very ham-like, but that's me. Anyways, hope you find the the short review useful. Um, if you have any questions, as always, feel free to drop me an email at tmartin at amateurlogic.tv and I'll do my best to answer them. Well, Tommy, that was a really interesting uh, segment there on the Yezu Automatic Tune Antenna. I believe that would probably be referred to as a screwdriver antenna, which is available from a lot of uh, other manufacturers, uh, except that one is specific to the Yezu rigs and interfaces real nicely with it. The only thing I don't like about it, though, and that will probably keep me from getting it, is the fact that it doesn't cover 80 meters. Yeah, that's kind of one of the downfalls that I mentioned in the segment. It and uh, I really don't like the way the, the whip is so flexible on it, but uh, it hasn't really caused a problem. And I don't use 80 that much when I'm mobile, so it ha hasn't been that much of an inconvenience for me. Nice antenna. I've got a, a short email from John in 3DRH and John just uh, wrote a short comment to say that uh, he thought it was really good that we're using the enemy of uh, amateur radio, namely the internet, uh, to promote amateur radio. And uh, well that's, that's perfectly fine, they're both methods of communications and uh, I think the, the two can coexist quite happily. Very good, yeah I think so. I'm pretty happy they work well together because that's what I use to talk to you guys on a daily basis anyway. Well, you know, the hams that uh, left the air for uh, the internet really didn't have RF in their blood to start with. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, you've got an email from another ham, don't you? Yep. Speaking of some old-timer HF guys, Lou, KE4UYP, writes to say he really enjoyed all our shows. His favorite is the one with tips on modifying the Nady wireless mics. But he said he also wanted to compliment us on our segment about the International Beacon Project. Thanks, Lou. And he says, there are many old-timers still on HF that are unaware of this kind of state-of-the-art, real-time propagation reporting system. Well, Lou, I think you're exactly right. And that's the kind of stuff we like to tackle here on Amateur Logic TV. Lou also says there's a lot of stuff 
that you can learn about your antenna from the International Beacon Project and listen to that, and that's certainly true. George? Well, I've got one more email here. This one's from Tom, KB4HQA, our friend in Cummings, Georgia. And Tom writes that he watched the last three episodes of the show and thinks that uh, we're doing a great job at it. Thank you, Tom. And he was just wondering, he said that uh, he'll be attending the MFJ 35th anniversary this weekend, and he wanted to know if any of us would be there. His brother-in-law lives in Ware, Mississippi, and he's going to be visiting for a long weekend and planning on attending the event in Starkville. I want to know where you said his brother-in-law lives? Yes. Where? <laughs> where? <laughs> yes. Where? W-E-I-R. We have nowhere down under. You do. <laughs> Yes, I had uh, quite a good time at that event, and it was great to meet you, Tom, and, and everyone else in Starkville. And uh, Wayne, our friend, went with me to the event, and we brought back about four tapes worth of video from MFJ and the uh, various factories there in Starkville. Uh, this episode, we're going to meet the president of MFJ Enterprises, Martin F. Jew. Good afternoon, Mr. Jew. It's nice <coughs> to finally meet you. Well, it's good to meet you, too, uh, George. Uh, this is your office that we're in now? It's quite interesting, all these radios you've got in here. We'll, we'll talk more about those in a minute. When did MFJ start? What year? MFJ started selling ham radio products in about October of 1972. But actually, MFJ started earlier than that, around 1969, when I came back to Mississippi State, to Starkville, to work on a PhD at Mississippi State University. Now, at that point, I had started an engineering design company, which uh, was to design uh, uh, and build electronic circuits for research projects for the various departments at MSU. But it, um, but it turns out that, that I found out pretty quickly that all I could do was all I could do if I yeah. did everything myself. So I figured that if I was going to get any bigger, faster, I had to work through other people. So I started to design some uh, electronic products and have other people build it. Of course, being a ham radio operator since I was in high school, I built uh, some ham products. And the two products that I built was um, uh, active filters because I had just taken a graduate course in active filters and had studied uh, filter design when I was working for the military division of Magnavox uh, for the Vietnam War. So I brought out two products. One was a CW filter and one was a sideband filter. And these were kits and these were filters you had to wire into your radio. Now you're a native Mississippian, aren't you? Well, I am. Um, I was born in Vicksburg and um, grew up in a little delta town called Hollandale, which is uh, south of Greenville. And uh, in fact, my great-grandfather helped build the Transcontinental Railroad back in the late 1860s. There were about 2,000 Chinese that settled down there during that time period. And that was a group, and we pretty much all grew up in little grocery stores like that. Did you ever think MFJ would grow to be as big as it is today? Well, you know, we all have dreams because I never thought it would get to this size, but when I named uh, MFJ Enterprises, 
the reason I stuck Enterprises on there was because I wanted to grow. So yeah. it was always always a push to keep to keep growing. So, uh, but you know, never thought we would get to the point where we could have products in most ham radio operator stations. Was there ever a time that you thought that you might have to shut the company down? I was thinking like that every day for the <laughs> first 15, 20 years. There were times when, uh, you know, we were paying everybody else but but myself, you know. So yeah. there were good times, there were bad times, but, you know, through all these years, these 35 years, we have never had one major layoff. How many products do you think MFJ offers today? Well, I'm not sure exactly how many, but it's it's over 2,000 different products. Where does your inspiration come for most of these products? It comes from just playing around with ham radio and recognizing the need for them and talking to our ham radio friends and customers and finding out what they need. What would you say is the most popular MFJ product? Well, we've got two lines of products that are real popular. One is the antenna analyzer that will measure the characteristic of antennas. That was going to be my guess. As a, as a long-time uh, broadcast engineer, I use bridges and synthesizer detectors and all that, and it's way too expensive for the amateur radio operator. And when I saw your antenna analyzer, I said, that, that's it. That's what we've been waiting for. Well, that was a product that we had originated and since then it's been copied throughout the world now. Uh, but the second line of products are the antenna tuners that we make. Uh, I have one of those too. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, every ham's got to have an antenna and they have to have a way to match the antenna to the radio, so it's a very popular line of products. And I will compliment you on the wide range of antenna tuners that MFJ offers. I mean, you've got something for the guy running uh, illegal power <laughs> all the way down to the guy who's just getting in and, and doesn't have a lot of money. It's like a chicken in every pot. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what percentage of MFJ products are made here in the U.S.? Well, I, I would think that's probably 90% of the products that we sell are made right here in Mississippi, right here in Starkville and the other 10% are products that have a lot of plastic in it and mm -hmm. uh, they are the less expensive products. They're things like clocks and right, watches yeah. and those kinds of things. Commodity type of yeah, stuff. Yeah, the commodity yeah. products. Well, I, I would compliment you also on that because I don't think any other major uh, amateur radio manufacturer could make a claim to anywhere near 90% made in the U.S. Mm -hmm. today. Uh, maybe a few antenna guys, but mm -hmm. most of the electronics seem to be made overseas mm -hmm. today. At one time, we were going to set a factory up in Mexico, but we came back up here and decided that we could do it better in Starkville. And what we did was to automate a lot of the assembly so we could do everything here in Starkville. Now, MFJ also owns a Maritron, Mirage, Vectronics, and High Gain. Did MFJ start those companies or did you acquire them over the years? Each one of those companies are old-time, well-known uh, companies that we brought here to Starkville and uh, revived them, built them up, added some new products, and, and now all of those companies are doing very well. Tell us a little bit about the famous MFJ No Matter What warranty. In the beginning, we wanted to make sure that um, 
our customers was always satisfied with our products. And when I was growing up, Sears and Roebuck was, was the big company. And, yeah. you know, we used to, have to get this big, thick Sears and Roebuck catalog. And, uh, you know, we just order it and they had a, uh, you know, money back guarantee. So that's, that's who we pattern that after. And if somebody buys a product from us, no matter what happens to it for a year, they buy it, they take it home in the back of a pickup truck, falls out, somebody runs over it, we'll give them another one or give them their money back. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's quite a guarantee. <laughs> I was speaking with Richard a little while ago, and he mentioned this uh, spiral-bound notebook <clears throat> sitting here in front of you. What's the story on those? Well, that came about from, uh, from the, my engineering background. Back when I was going to uh, Mississippi State, we all had to keep notebooks, and, and during all the design and engineering, uh, I always kept a notebook on, on all my designs, and um, I just extended it to my everyday business thing. So anytime I do anything, it ends up in my notebook. I start off with the date, and uh, I mean, I record every phone call, recall uh, most of our conversations, and just about everything is in this notebook. And I started doing this from the very beginning. And on this shelf over here, there's uh, 35, 40 years worth of notes that I've taken throughout the years. Wow. <laughs> so this, this kind of predates the uh, personal computer then, uh, <laughs> yeah. for years. <laughs> As a kid, you know, I. Uh, didn't have much money, so I built my own uh, transmitters and receivers like all the hams during the time period that I grew up. And, you know, a lot of the hams now will like to collect the very best of the radios, but the collection that I have were the low-end radios. These were the radios that were available to the young hams back then. So these are all the novice type, the beginner type radios, and they start from the early, from the 1940s through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And for example, that little Heathkit transmitter, that gray box over here, was a, yeah, this was, yeah that right was here. the very first uh, transmitter that Heathkit brought out, and I think back in 1951. And uh, the two boxes up there were early, uh, uh, inexpensive receiver and transmitters that were available to the hams. And the Helicraft uh, receiver over here is uh, one that I had when I was a, a novice. It was a 1940s radios. Wow. So, uh, and these were Heathkit beginner uh, radio receivers and transmitters. And um, there's some uh, some QRP Heathkit, some old uh, early Tentec radios, and there's some antenna tuners back in the 40s and the 50s, and the old Helicrafter radios, and some of the Johnson stuff. But these were the the cheap radios back in its days. Well, you can kind of see the progression of Heathkit through your shelf right there, and their different color schemes as they yeah throughout the years. Yeah. And I have a whole collection of shortwave radios back on, on the other side of the bookcase. The old beginner Heathkit shortwave radios here. And um, there's some old Helicrafter. Yeah, mm. that's Tentec there it looks like. Uh, yeah, yeah, 
Tentac antenna tuner, some Drake equipment, some Ally radio, some Lafayette radio, wow. more Heath kit. There's one thing that's interesting that's behind you right there. See that gray? That's a night kit space banner that I built when I was in the seventh or eighth <laughs> grade. Still got Boy, to the original radio. That is old. This looks like to me probably the most fun room here. Yeah. This is yeah. where you do your tinkering. Yeah, come back here after work and weekends and just play around, have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> this is old regenerative tube type receiver, an old tube type transmitter. I was thinking about building into a product wow. for our hams to use. Well, it'll, it'll bring back some uh, some memories and some of the young hands will find out what vacuum tubes are. Exactly. They don't really teach that anymore, uh -huh. do they? <laughs> That's interesting. The problem is the power supply. Yeah, so, the high voltage. Yeah, you can't hardly get transformers, so what we're going to do is to make a little solid state device that you plug into a 12 volt, and then from that 12 volt it'll bring out the high voltage and that's needed huh. for these things. So it's a way of of bringing back high voltage without going to expensive power transformers. You spend so much time with ham radio as your uh, business, as your long-time hobby. Do you ever have a chance to get on the air much anymore? Well, well, I do. I, I don't get on the air every day, but I do get on the air. And um, what I like to operate is CW on 20 meters and 40 meters, and I usually operate very low power, 10 watts or below 10 watts. I even operate mobile CW using less than 10 watts. Wow. So, and I like to play with very crude antennas. I like to put antennas up in my bedroom just to see if I can get out and make contacts. <laughs> this is stuff I'm playing with. See, this antenna would pull out to 12 feet long. Good gracious. <laughs> and <Wow>. then <laughs> this will, by itself will operate up to 20 meters. Now, if you want to operate, say, 40 meters or 80 meters, just screw on this uh, loading coil on here, and then you can operate whatever band you want. You take a counterpoise wire and just throw it on the floor. I added those feet, so if you use a real long whip antenna, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll still stay on there, yeah. yeah. Well, Mr. Jew, it's really been a pleasure talking with you <laughs> well, today. Well, George, it's very nice to meet you, and... Uh, You've got a wonderful service here for, for us hams. Well, thank you, and you do too. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, George, well done. You know, I learned a lot from that video, and I think other hams that watch it will as well. And it was fascinating. I think the biggest thing I learned about Martin and MFJ that I didn't realize is that Martin is a native Mississippian. I, I'm really thrilled about that. You, you know, he's just a regular guy. Uh, if you looked at his bench there, it looks very much like mine. <laughs> yeah, mine too. You know, he's just constantly trying out different things, and uh, and it shows in his products. He probably has more ham radio products than anybody has ever offered. And boy, he's a true ham. Yeah, he's built quite the empire there with all that stuff. It's really incredible. We've got some more videos uh, coming in future episodes. Uh, Wayne and I also toured the MFJ factory where they build a lot of those products. We also toured the um, Ameritron Amplifier Factory and the High Gain Antenna and Rotor Factory. And I've got to tell you, you know, I never knew all this was going on in those places, but uh, you'll see in future episodes. Tommy, you got an email for us. I do have one. I have another one about Ham Radio Deluxe. Apparently that's a really popular topic. 
from William W8VHO says he's a big fan of Ham Radio Deluxe. He mostly uses the newest beta versions. Says the creator Simon posts them on the forums. Anyway, says one thing people don't know is that you can get audio in and out of your radio from the computer. There are a lot of digital modes, PSK 31s, slow scan TV, RIDI, etc., etc. Uh, did you know that? Off the MMSSTV site, there's a program that links MMSSTV and MMTTY to Ham Radio Deluxe. Boy, that's a lot of letters. <laughs> anyway, it says you can uh, control your rig key. I'm sorry, key your rig through this program. And so, uh, that sounds very interesting. I hope to be able to download that stuff and try it out here soon. I appreciate you letting us know about that, William. Yeah, we just keep learning more and more about Ham Radio Deluxe, don't we? Yeah, we do. It's just uh, seems somewhat unlimited, the things that you can do with it. And it really touched a chord, obviously, with a lot of our viewers. Yes, it did. And, and with good reason. I mean, it's a great package. When you look at everything that's in there, if your rig supports it, I don't think there'd be any question as to what software you'd use with it. Yeah, no doubt. I've got an email here from our friend David in Scotland. And uh, I've got a little video clip here that I downloaded from YouTube. This is his 40 meter quarter wave vertical that he's built. And he was asking how many radials should he have on it? How many ground radials? There were five in this video, but now he has 25 on it. And his target is to put in 60 uh, radials. And uh, he wanted to know what we thought. And as a broadcast engineer, uh, typically what we would use on a quarter wave uh, AM antenna would be 120 equally spaced radials that are at least a quarter wavelength long and in between those radials we would have shorter radials that were uh, 10 to 20 feet long or we'd have a copper ground screen uh, you know say uh, 10 or 20 feet around the base of the tower there to improve the ground system as well now one thing I did notice about his video is that uh, all the radials seem to be coming off in one direction and at least that's the way it appeared. Now, actually, your radials need to be equally spaced around the tower. And also, some of those radials look like they had insulation on them. And that's a no-no as well. It needs to be bare copper radials. George is a broadcast engineer. And they're going to do it to the nth degree, buddy. <laughs> but for ham radio operation, 120 is not only plenty, but, well, let's just say it's plenty. I added some more verticals to my 17 meter vertical today. I mean, I, I added some more radials to my 17 meter vertical today. I've got 10 so far. Sounds like we're kind of on the same train. We'll get there one of these days. 25 is pretty good. 32 is better. Sure, 64 is getting near perfect, and 120 is perfect. But I think you were reaching, you know, diminishing return after you get over 32. Conventional ham literature will tell you you're after that. You're reaching uh, fast, reaching, diminishing return. And that would be the difference between a hobby and a profession. Exactly. Peter, have you got an email for us? Sure, I've got a, an email here from Joe N2QOJ. And uh, Joe uh, wrote to us to tell, him, tell us about his new blog spot. 
I went and had a quick look at it, and it's pretty good, a range of different topics, but what interested me most was uh, a mention of various applications for use with Ubuntu, which is a Linux operating system. Now, I recently uh, installed Linux on one of my computers here, and I'm starting to learn all about it. And uh, it's really useful to be able to go and look at these various applications uh, and see what I can possibly use in the future. So thanks a lot, Joe. Great OS, a lot of fun. I've used Ubuntu myself. In fact, I have an install of it, as well as a couple other Linux distributions and Mac OS and Windows. And I had an opportunity to use several during my next segment. As we'll see right now, Network Tools, we'll take a look at NetStat. Hi, welcome to another Network Tools segment. Today, really interesting segment, we're going to take a look at how you can tell who's connected to your computer across the internet, or vice versa, whose computer you're connected to. It's a two-way street, of course. First, a little background. How do computers talk anyway? How can we tell when they're connected? Well, a computer has something called a port. In fact, it has 65,535 of them. All these ports are kind of like channels, but before I digress, Let's take a look at what the experts have to say about what a port is. One expert out there on the web is, of course, Wikipedia. And don't you love Wikipedia? Let's see what Wikipedia has to say about a computer port. It is a virtual data connection that can be used by programs to exchange data. I like to think of it as a virtual wire between computers. So now that you have an idea of what a port is, let's take a look at a concrete example. Here's a computer having a conversation with another computer. Your computer sends out data on ports 49,501 to a web server on port 80 or an email server on port 143. Okay, now that you understand a computer conversation, let's take a look at how we would use the tool NetStat to peek in on the conversations your computer's having. Okay, type netstat-a for all, in for numeric, and pipe that out to more. Press enter. Look in the local address column at 10.48.100.3, that's me, and colon, port 139 through 1059. That's where we're having conversations with IP address 209 in the foreign address column, port 80, that's a web server. Type that IP address in your browser and see where you end up. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Hey, Jim, where are you getting all these port numbers from? Are you just pulling those out of the air and making them up? Well, no, I'm not. Here's where you can find a list right on your own computer. From the directory shown, type the words Type Services and press Enter. You'll see a list of services in the first column, followed by a second column of port numbers and a slash and whether they speak TCP or UDP. You'll recognize the more familiar ones like FTP on port 2021 and on port 80, HTTP. As you can see, NetStat turns out to be a pretty good computer security tool, as does any computer tool that watches ports and who's connected to them. Here are some others. From the top 100 network security tools list, here are the top three. Nessus, a vulnerability assessment tool, Wireshark, a sniffer, and Snort, everyone's favorite open source intrusion detection system. See the rest at sectools.org. Well, thank you for joining us again on Network Tools. If you have an idea for a future segment or something you'd like to see, just send me an email. I'm at jimmy at amateurlogic.tv. Look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, stay connected. Yeah, and that's that, man, that's a good tool. We just used that recently, George, if you remember, to see that Windows Media Player was sending information about MP3s that you're playing to all kinds of 
record stores. I think Google was in there. A lot of stuff was, was uh, pretty interesting. <laughs> That's exactly the tool you use to see that kind of stuff. That's right. Hey, I got to tell you guys, I got excited the other day. I got home, had a piece of mail. Wife brought it to me. It's big envelope stamped. Um, a military uh, postmark kind of stamp on the outside and it had Iraq written on it and it was addressed to me and uh, Amateur Logic as well. I said, wow, and I opened it up. Inside, something from Scott AD7MI slash YI9MI and Scott says, sir, I am a big Amateur Logic TV fan and want to watch all the past episodes. My internet connection here in Iraq is very poor, so I'm having a hard time downloading them. Could you please put as many episodes as will fit on the enclosed SD card and mail it back to me? Please start with episode one. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you for the show and your help. 7-3, Scott and U.S. Army Taja. Iraq. I'm sure I did not pronounce that correct. Wow. Wow. And you fixed him up, didn't you, Jim? Surely did. The first eight episodes fit on his SD card. I put the rest on a DVD, loaded it all up, and sent it back to him. Unlike the left-wing major media outlets and a few misguided liberals here, we Americans at AmateurLogic.tv, like most Americans, support our troops, the troops from other nations who have joined us, and our president in the war on terror. Here, here. Absolutely. We'll have an email here from Rajesh. It says he enjoyed watching episode 10, especially the feature on night photography. Yeah, that, that was a lot of fun doing. He said he attaches his pic, and uh, it's a picture of a mobile telephone tower in front of his QTH during a semi-cloudy full moon night. Can I suggest how he can improve taking this shot again? The exposure time was 30 seconds on his Konica Diamage 6 camera. I'm not familiar with that particular camera, but if you have a RAW mode on it, I would definitely take it with RAW, and, and suggestions on what to do with the picture really depends on the output. Since you've got a light source of the moon there, it's going to be really difficult to be able to get detail in the tower as well. Also, if you look in real close on there, it looks like maybe you had the camera sitting, sitting on something and there was some slight movement. Use a sturdy tripod. If you look close, you can see a little uh, silhouette or a double image of the tower. You might try referring back to one of our previous photo tips where you can take two Im images and make one out of it and increase the dynamic range. I think that would probably be your best bet if you want detail in the tower and to still have the moon up there without being completely blown out. Well, I've got uh, one more email here, and this one's from Ed, KT6F, in Vancouver, Washington. And Ed writes that he's been a ham since 1977, but he's been inactive now for over 20 years. Somehow he stumbled across our program, and uh, he's been thinking about dusting off his old Kenwood TS520S. But he saw my segment on the Soft Rock uh, SDR uh, last month, and uh, it got him kind of curious about it. He did uh, some searching and found that the new kit currently out is the uh, Soft Rock 2030. Uh, version 6.2 that transmits as well as receives and it's only like $35 for the kit so he's thinking about getting one and uh, he had a question he wanted to know um, you know just what modes could this operate in does it operate in sideband or AM CW 
and he really wasn't sure, but I think this next segment will uh, clear it up for you, Ed. The program we're going to use to demonstrate the soft rock with today is the M0 KGK SDR decoder. This is an IQ decoder for software-defined radios, and you can find it at this website. Now, not being an expert at this, we'll just briefly go through and look at a few things that I do know about it. Number one, here's the frequency displayed right here. This is input manually through the uh, setup because there's no way that uh, the software can really know what frequency your uh, soft rock is operating at. Here's the S meter. Here are the various speed settings for the AGC. Here's the start stop for the radio, a record button an RIT function, uh, RF and AF gains, some DSP controls for automatic noise reduction, automatic noise limiter, and uh, I don't even know what that one is. Here are the various modes of operation, lower sideband, upper sideband, CW lower sideband, CW upper sideband, AM and FM. Uh, also, you can set the width of uh, CW settings here. I've got it set to 300 hertz right now. And these filters down here allow you to fine-tune it more if you were to select the user setting here. Let's start the radio. What we can see here is the whole width of the spectrum that this receiver can receive at once. All these little peaks here are different CW uh, conversations that are going on currently. The crystal that's in my soft rock only allows me to listen in the CW portion of the band, so that's what we'll be looking at today. Here's a conversation going on in CW right now. Here's the guy replying to him. You hear the uh, two different pitches and tone there. That's because they're on slightly different frequencies. As I fine-tune on him, uh, his pitch will change a little bit. If I turn off the automatic noise reduction, I hear more background noise, but it makes it a little easier to tune and get right on him. If I want to listen to a different CW conversation, I can just grab my little notch here and slide it down to the next conversation. I can use my mouse wheel to fine tune it. turn back home automatic noise reduction and you can see the background noise practically disappears and all I hear left is the CW tones. Here's another conversation right near us and you can see the strength of that one was considerably lower than the last one we listened to. Now this is the waterfall display of the signals that are coming in. Everywhere you see a little line here that's an actual carrier that we're detecting and you can actually see the dots and dashes in here in the patterns. We just clicked on this guy. Let's click on another uh, transmission. That's me changing the tone by trying to fine-tune him a little. I could do that with the writ and probably get a little finer steps. I can also tighten up the bandwidth by selecting a tighter CW filter here. 
This has the effect of cutting out more of the noise that's on the sidebands, but you've got to be right on frequency to hear the uh, transmission then. I'll turn on the automatic noise reduction, and now we're left with just strictly the uh, CW tones. <clears throat> they sound a bit mechanical, but that's one thing you'll find uh, when you start playing with these receivers. There's the waveform display. This is uh, showing us a waveform of the audio that's actually being decoded. It's a little bit ahead of what we're hearing. So as you can see, there's lots of options on a software-defined radio. Now this is just one package that you can use with the SoftRock. There are many others out there, and I won't try to name them today, and, and each has its own strengths and weaknesses. This is something you just want to play with yourself uh, once you had a software-defined radio. Now one other note, you can actually run the audio from your uh, any receiver actually into the, a software-defined decoder like this and use the filters to fine-tune and uh, tweak out some of the background noise. So you might want to play with that one day and uh, see how that works for you. It would be similar to operating a software-defined radio of this type. Well, I tell you, that is some super software. I mean, not only is it super in its operation and how it can uniquely, you know, you can get down and just really squeeze that signal and get nothing but that CW note. Or look wide open and see every CW signal on the band. That is cool. I learned something today. I didn't know that they had a new model out that would transmit as well. So that kind of got my interest peaked. I may have to get one of those. It's a nice little project. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I played with uh, three or four other software packages that are compatible with it. And each one of them does a little bit something different. But I'd suggest anybody who's, you know, got the uh, knack to build and, uh, or, you know, just wants to try one, have at it. You know, it doesn't cost that much money. As Bill from Solder Smoke says, the knack. The knack. The knack. Actually, <laughs> I think that came from Dilbert at first, but uh, I'd be glad when the Bill gets the Solder Smoke stuff fired up again. Hey, you know, uh, kind of heard from Bill indirectly the other day on the QRPL mailing list. And he says he has arrived in Italy. They're getting stuff unpacked. He does not have his uh, podcast recording or ham gear there yet. So it's going to be a little while longer yet. But they're settled or getting there. Well, it'll sure be good to hear from Bill again. It's, it's been a while and we really miss Solder Smoke. And that does it for episode 16. We hope you've enjoyed it as always. And look forward to seeing you again next month. That's right. We enjoyed it. And I guess this is good day, Peter. Yep. G'day, guys. See you later. See you next month. See you.